of life's ultimate questions. Are you a dog person or a cat person? Hi, I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape. This week, we have something for both feline and canine lovers. We begin with dogs and a way to help improve the lives of homeless dogs in the New York City area. It's called Foster Dogs NYC, and I'm joined in the studio by the organization's founder, Sarah Brasky. Sarah, hello. Thank you so much. Uh, It's exciting to be here, George. So how early did you realize that you loved dogs? Uh, Probably in utero. (laughs) Um, When I was really little, before I could even remember, my parents tell me that the only way for me to do things, like to go on a, a family hike or to read a book even, was for it to involve dogs. And so um, when I first was supposed to start reading, I was not that into it. And my parents asked my teacher how to encourage me to read. And my teacher said, get her books about dogs, go to the library. And and it worked. And so I picked out any book about dogs. And that didn't stop until probably after high school. Everything was dog, dog, dog. (laughs) When did uh, you actually get your first real live dog? Uh, too late, in my opinion. It should have started earlier, but my parents resisted. And then finally, when I was, let's see, about um, 10 years old, they caved. I, I petitioned for a dog, and, and we got our first dog, who was a Bichon. And, um, and then I've never not had a dog since then. Now, was that a shelter dog? No. My first dog was not a shelter dog. And I... Being 10 years old and my family hadn't had our own family dog before, at the time we didn't know that they were from puppy mills where dogs were bred like, um, you know, factory animals. And and it's a very sad place. So we didn't want to support that again. And I've only rescued ever since. So what is it about dogs that you love so much? It's their innocence, their uh, friendliness, um, the fact that they make you feel better and you help them feel better. It's this mutually beneficial, um, it's a symbiotic relationship. I think having a dog, it requires work. Um, it's not always easy. Sometimes you have to get a dog trainer or you have to deal with chewed up items. But it's par for the course and it all it really is, is worthwhile in my opinion. So um, I assume you have dog now or dogs now? <laughs> yes, yes, I do. I have two. And for my whole life, once I got my first dog, I said, okay, but now I want two dogs. They have to have a friend. So now I have two, Ozzy and Shaggy. So what inspired you to launch this organization, Foster Dogs NYC? Yeah, um, I was out, let's see. So I've always wanted to work in animal care, especially dog rescue. As the years progressed, I realized that was my that was my passion. Um, also, I, I realized I cannot be a veterinarian, even if I want to, because um, I will just pass out at the sight of blood. So it won't be a very successful surgery uh, if the veterinarian passes out. So I, I started working more with dog rescue and helping animal shelters. Um, then after college, I I wanted a dog. I wanted to have a dog in my apartment. It was my first job out of college. And my, my family dog was living in Connecticut with my parents. So I said, how do I have a dog um, but not commit to the long term? So I found out about fostering. And it was very new at the time. This was almost eight years ago. And uh, nobody really knew about fostering. But the local animal shelter, the um, ACC Animal Care Center in Harlem, they um, they had a small program for fostering. 
So I, now, why foster versus just bringing a dog into your home on a permanent basis? Yeah, um, it's sort of in between going to walk a dog at a shelter and adopting. It's this in between cool um, way you can benefit the universe. And um, once I found out about fostering, I was like, this is really an awesome thing that I need to spread the word about. So I fostered my first couple dogs, and that was it. I started fosterdogsnyc.com, and it grew and grew and started getting volunteers, and it all just organically became this bigger 501c3 nonprofit over the you know last seven years. So how does the organization work? Do you essentially just play matchmaker? Yeah, I have two jobs, essentially. I run Foster Dogs Incorporated, which is fosterdogsnyc.com. I run that organization. I'm the executive director. Um, we run events. We have volunteers. We um, we share adoptable dogs from the New York City area. Uh, we share them on our website, at, at events, and such. Um, my other job is the dog matchmaker, and that's a personal concierge service to help people who need a real helping hand in adopting a dog. So I would imagine you're working with a wide variety of rescue organizations. Yeah, there's so many. You would have no idea unless you start searching maybe Pet Finder or Googling all the dozens of rescue groups just in New York City alone. Um, it There's groups for specific types of breeds, um, but there's also general all-breed rescue groups where they help any type of dog that needs them. So any kind of animal you want to save, whether it's fostering or adoption, they're out there. Um, it just depends on how flexible you are on exactly what that animal will look like. Um, so that's where breed-specific rescues might come come into play. If you love Weimaraners, there's a Weimaraner rescue group. How do you prepare yourself so you don't get so emotionally attached to a foster dog? And then you have to give that dog up for yeah, adoption. It's a big, it's probably our biggest question is, how do I say goodbye to this dog that I've had in my home for a few weeks, a few months? And it's a very tough thing to do. You have to really um, focus on what the overall mission is, which is to help be a halfway house to an animal who maybe was not thriving at the shelter or, you know, was otherwise going to be put to sleep if they were if the dog was remaining in a shelter. Um, so that was why you started. But then why you won't adopt? Maybe you can adopt. That's always an option. Um, but don't feel pressure to do it because then once that dog gets adopted, you go and save another dog who needs you. So people who foster are an amazing group of people. It's not anyone who can do it. You have to be okay with some maybe some weird infection or, you know, the the dog's bathrooming is not up to par. And you have to be able to roll with the punches where many adopters say, well, I want a dog that's house trained. I want a dog that's good on the leash. And you can help get that dog to that point, which not everyone wants to do. You also run a program called FOSPIS, mm -hmm. which is for older or ill dogs. Yes. And FOSPIS is really special because we help dogs who might otherwise have died a very sad death in the shelter where um, it's not the shelter's fault. This is just a fact of life that we all are going to die eventually. And with a, let's say, a 15-year-old German shepherd at the shelter, the chances of 
people lining up at the door to adopt that dog are pretty low. There might be a, a wonderful person who says, I love seniors, give me that dog. Um, but that's not a guarantee. Many people want a healthy young dog. Um, we found that there was a real need for a home for either terminally ill and or super senior dogs at the shelter. So we provide a forever foster home that helps. They, they understand that this dog is not going to live that long. It's you're going into it mentally prepared and we provide them with food and, um, you know, all the cushy stuff like a nice bed and we can help with grooming. Um, we want it to be a peaceful, uh, welcoming type of program for the caretaker and for the dog. And um, so far we've had uh, over a dozen dogs receive our sponsorship. Actually now at, that was a dozen dogs in our first two years of the program. Now it's over 20. Wow. Sorry. So we've, we've had a bunch and now we just helped a new dog, Kayla, who has probably less than six months to live. She is some sort of shepherd mix, and she found, with our help, this amazing home in Brooklyn by the beach. She goes to take a walk on the water every day. She lives with a whole pack of other dogs and kids, and she now does uh, water therapy, hydrotherapy, uh, with her phosphorus caretaker. So that dog has hit the jackpot. How many dogs would you estimate are in need of a foster home in New York City? Oh, gosh. Uh, I can't even count. Like hundreds every day. Um, pretty much if you go to any ACC shelter, that's our city shelter, that's animal care centers. Um, there's one in Staten Island, Harlem, and Brooklyn. You can just walk in the door and say, I want to become a foster caretaker. And they can easily find you a, a whole group of dogs in the back. They'll say, take your pick. Um, there's always more dogs that need homes. I would say it depends on how specific you are about your needs. So if you can only handle a senior mellow a uh, small dog, then that limits the available, you know, number of dogs. But if you're very flexible and you say, listen, I just want a dog that's going to take long walks with me and keep me company, then I could give you a list right now of 25 dogs off the top of my head. How do you determine what kind of dog is right for you? I think first think about your experience with dogs. Maybe you've had pets before. If you in your life have had only small poodles, then maybe that's sort of your comfort zone. And then you you say, for starters, I want a small, mellow dog because that's what I'm used to. And then you say, you know what? Now that I've fostered that type of dog, I want to switch it up. I want a jogging buddy. And as long as that dog is let's say, friendly with other dogs, I can handle that. So you think about your your everyday life, maybe what you do socially um, to make sure that that dog can somewhat fit into your routine. And, um, and then, you know, part of it is just going with what you get. Foster dogs are like a box of chocolates. Um, and when you have a, a dog that maybe has not lived in a home before, there's going to be challenges. And I'm not going to sugarcoat it. The dog may pee on your rug or may chew up your precious uh, watch. I can't guarantee those things, but... Did you... those things happen to you or those <laughs> real-life examples? Let's see. For me, oh, well, I'll give you one. We had an Ikea couch. Luckily, it was not the top of the line, but it was a couch. And, you know, we didn't want to get rid of it. And um, my 
dog Ozzy, who was then a foster dog, he was still a puppy, um, he chewed up the entire center section of the, the couch. Um, we had to get rid of it, mm. and it was very sad because uh, that's a big deal. But as a positive thing, I know people who foster dogs who have cried for days after the dog was gone because they developed such a beautiful relationship. Or I've had people that lost 10 pounds from having a foster dog because they had to walk more. Um, my first foster pit bull was from the, sh- the shelter in Harlem. And I ended up losing, I think, like 15 pounds that <laughs> summer because it was hot and I had to take the dog out. So it was great. Um, there's a lot of really nice perks um, with having a dog that's even a dog that's active and smart because you have to adjust to that dog's needs while they're adjusting to your life. How do you vet foster parents to make sure that they are the people you want to bring these dogs into their mm-hmm. homes? Yeah, there's I would say most of the people that we hear from who either email us to say I'm interested or complete what um, what we call a foster roster. It's a database where Anyone can apply. It goes onto a spreadsheet. And then we have their basic information and can reach out to people en masse of uh, the types of dogs that that need foster homes. Um, It's a targeted search. But when somebody um, reaches out to us, I would say most of the time they're really great people. And if somebody seems a little sketchy, if they say, hey, I want to breed dogs, how do I go find a foster dog? Or I want to start a dog fighting ring, that's a, that's a red flag. And that's not something that we um, entertain. Uh, we don't want more dogs being created. We don't want to breed. We don't want to encourage any kind of animal abuse. So um, that usually becomes clear once we start talking to someone if they have the wrong intentions. I would say that has happened a small handful of times in my seven years of of doing this. Most people are good. Um, That being said, each rescue group that we work with, again, dozens of rescue groups in the New York City area alone, um, each group requires an application when somebody fosters or adopts through their group. So we we will send somebody to them and then they fill out their formal application and sign a contract. I understand you have at least one connection to cats, and that yeah. is actually a connection to our next guest on the show, who is the author of a new book called Shop Cats. Yeah, it's so funny because I, I saw this book on display at my local bookstore in Park Slope, Brooklyn, and the cover of that book is a cat, and um, and we pass by this cat all the time, and it's just so funny how all the worlds collide. Yes, it's, um, I don't remember his name um but the cat is very sweet and and it's fun to see him on the cover of a book (laughs) well we'll be talking about that book in just a moment meantime your website is yes uh, fosterdogsnyc.com and thedogmatchmaker.com sarah thank you so much for coming in thanks george this was fun sarah braski is the founder of foster dogs nyc we now move from man's best friend to man's favorite youtube sensation the cat Joining me on the phone is Tamar Arslanian. She's the author of the book Shop Cats of New York, as well as the blog IHaveCat.com. Tamar, meow. <laughs> Thank you. I don't meow back. <laughs> all right. Hello. I'll take it. Hello to you. How many cats do you have, first of all? I, I have two cats. And when did you get your first cat? Actually, I was um, in my 30s before I ever had um, a cat or any sort of a pet, really, beyond a, um, a hamster and a fish. What inspired you to get a feline? 
Well, I always say it's because of a guy. I was dating a guy long distance. Um, he lived in Chicago when I was in New York. And, of course, as I was pining away from him and I'd be on the phone with him and, you know, just, oh, I miss you and this and that. And he'd be like, oh, my goodness, let me tell you about Ian and, Ian and Shelly, who, who were his cats at the time. Ian did this today. Shelly did this today. And I was like, I'm sitting here and I'm so missing him. And he's just He's all happy, and he's just chatting away about how fulfilled he is and how happy and full his life is with these kitties. So I kind of joke that Kip, who is my first cat, is my retaliatory cat, I guess, in a way, because I decided I was going to get a cat of my own. But actually, you know, it honestly was through him that I sort of even got to know cats because I really wasn't much of an animal person. So it was really because of a guy. Now you're still single, correct? Yes, I am. <laughs> and you're in your 40s now. Yep. Do you fear the crazy cat lady stereotype? You know, I think it's always going to be there to a degree. I think um, the younger generation has, has done a great job in sort of helping debunk the myth when you think about all the celebrities that are out there wearing cat clothes and who own cats and they're so loud and proud about it. I mean, of course, Taylor Swift comes to mind, but I'm thinking Kariani Naba, again, she's not younger, but again, she's she's very high profile and is such a big animal lover. So I, I think that that crazy cat lady stigma will always be there to a degree, but I think that, you know, there are ways people, individuals can kind of work to uh, counter that in their own lives. And I think I do try to do that, but I think a lot of that also has to do with just being in tune socially. I don't necessarily show cat pictures all the time to people unless I know they're huge cat lovers. Uh, I try my best not to have a lot of cat hair on my clothes when I'm walking around. I always have like a, a, a sticky roller with me in my bag. So I think, it, I, you know, it, it comes down to some of those common sense things. But sure, I mean, there's always going to be people, people that think I'm a crazy cat lady. Uh, I think that would happen even if you had one cat. So, yeah, I think it's always going to be there, but I think that there are ways you can kind of try to counter it if, if you so choose. So what inspired you to blog about your experiences <laughs> as a single woman and a cat owner? You know, it's funny because I've never considered myself a writer. But, you know, I don't know. I was with a girlfriend, and she was not a cat lover, and she got to know my cats and course, fell in love with them. <laughs> That's my story. But, you know, I would start to just tell her funny things about one of my cats in particular, the one who passed away. It was just this kind of really chubby guy. And, it was, you know, he was so human in so many ways. And so I would start to tell stories about him or joke about him. And it started, we started talking about things and I started to jot little notes down or, or kind of tell stories about how I thought, you know, maybe I wouldn't be single if I had cats growing up because I'm a very outgoing person. I can be a little loud and that has a potential to scare off cats and hey, probably guys too. So I started to kind of make these connections and she said, you know, you should really start writing some of these stories down. And that's really how the blog started. And it took off. You have thousands of followers, right? Yeah, it's pretty crazy, I guess. I think, you know, people liked the idea that there could be a another a way to bring to life a, a cat woman um, other than that crazy cat lady kind of way. And that we, I could even poke fun at myself. I mean, the reason I called it I Have Cat was sort of, as if it's a disease, you know, it's something that you have to speak about. It's like, you know, I have cancer. It's like, I have cat. It's, it's sort of something that, that people didn't feel necessarily always very comfortable talking about mixed company. So I think people kind of liked that and they found it 
funny and humorous and also liked the fact that I was kind of saying you don't have to give up your sense of style in order to still, you know, receive the benefits and joys of having a little furry companion in your home. Well, from bookstores to wine shops, cats are also found in all kinds of New York City businesses. (laughs) Yes, they are. (laughs) How did this book, Shop Cats, come about? Well, I I joke about it, but it's true. And I've never really understood this whole idea of having eureka moment in the shower. I really don't like to dawdle in the shower. I'm kind of an in-and-out kind of girl, and I just keep it basic. And for some reason, after a year plus of trying to come up with ideas to pitch my agent or pitching ideas unsuccessfully, I was in the shower one day, and I don't even know how it happened. I said, I wonder why there aren't any books about shop cats. So I thought, hey, maybe I've hit upon an idea here. How did you go about identifying businesses with cats? It was not easy. Um, You know, I had a few that I knew of. I asked a lot of friends. I posted things on the blogs, and I did a lot of online research. So, you know, and I, I did find old articles here and there. And, you know, unfortunately, a lot of them were dated, so a lot of the cats were not around anymore and hadn't necessarily been replaced. So, uh, yeah, mostly a lot of online research and just asking people through my personal Facebook page, through my I Have Cat Facebook page, and uh, following up on leads that way. So how would you describe the relationship between shop owners and their cats? It, it, I think it, it, I mean, it varies, but I think for the most part, the cats that we included in our book, I mean, I would say I guess all the cats we included in our book were just incredibly beloved. And, you know, many of them were referred to as king or queen. So I guess, you know, it's that, that whole idea and that, uh, dogs have uh, owners, yes, and cats have staff. So, again, I think that still is true even in, in these businesses, in these shops, because I think so many of their customers even come to sort of, you know, prey at their uh, at their feet or at the, at the pedestal of the shop cat, that it really, they, they are kind of sort of um, elevated to a degree, and they almost do seem to rule their domain. Ivy is the resident cat at Neargard Pharmacy in New York City, and Ivy is respectfully referred to as Her Royal Highness Princess Ivy of Neargard. Yeah, you've got to like that one, right? You can almost imagine that she was, like, being, you know, somehow anointed. (laughs) Now, going into this project, you admitted in the book that you weren't so sure about whether these cats were well cared for and loved. Yeah, I think I was more concerned about, you know, not so much the love that they would receive. But again, I think I was really, like, conflicted about the fact that many of them stayed, and most of them stay in their stores at night, um, you know, when the shops closed. And I think, you know, one thing that, that was interesting, and it came up and uh, again and again, but one particular shopkeeper said, you know, I spend, I spend more time with the cats that I work with than my own cats. And they get more love and interaction and stimulation than my cats. You know, I see my cats for maybe 45 minutes or an hour in the morning when I'm racing around trying to get out of the apartment. And then I come home and I feed them and I'm vegging out in front of the TV and I go to bed after a few hours. So it was interesting to me that when she pointed that out, it kind of became clearer to me. And again, you know, when we're sleeping, we're not interacting with them, and that's usually at night as well. So a lot of these cats, I mean, again, it's not every cat, I think, that is well-suited for these environments. But if you have a cat that is likes people and is playful and, and likes the attention, and as long as they have a place that they can go be alone when they want to be, 
Um, I think many of these cats do live more cat-like lives um, as much as, you know, one can be in the wild, so to speak, in New York City uh, than our own uh, cats who live in more traditional homes. The Algonquin Hotel in Manhattan has long had a cat. What's the story there? (laughs) You know, I don't... I should have had the book open ah. so I could look at it. It's right in front of me. But I do know that they've had cats for many years. And, and actually, apparently, back when, um, I think it was uh, Drew Barrymore's grandfather, or was it great-grandfather, was playing Hamlet on Broadway and was living there. Uh, a cat, just a stray cat, walked in. And the owner at the time, I guess, was a cat lover and welcomed this cat in. And it was a boy cat, or they thought it was a boy cat, and so they named him Hamlet after uh, the role Barrymore was playing on Broadway at the time. And the cat has sort of stayed ever since. And they, um, when it's a woman, they call it Matilda. And I was not able to get a real answer as to where the name Matilda came from. So there have been a few Matildas. Now, Matilda is one of the few cats... Um, maybe the only cat in the book that was actually um, from a rescue group. Matilda's from North Shore Animal League in Long Island. Um, and that's another thing I do bring up in the introduction of the book, which is you know, many rescues will not uh, adopt a cat out to a shop because they are afraid that they'll just be used as mousers and not properly cared for. So I think that's one thing I also hope to shed some light on, which is just as you can't really generalize about humans in their private home, I think you can't really generalize about businesses either because, you know, there are many times rescue groups without knowing adopt out to hoarders or adopt adopt out to situations that are not ideal for a cat. So I think it can cut both ways. And I think, you know, there might be an opportunity out there to, you know, and there might be an opportunity out there to give more cats homes in in the New York City area if, you know, there was a little bit more open-mindedness about what constitutes a quote-unquote home. What's the unlikeliest business you found a cat living in? I guess real estate agent's office. <laughs> I don't know, it doesn't sound that weird, maybe, but I, I was surprised. I, guess I was surprised I, by the dry cleaner because of the, the cat cleaner, hair. Yeah, that's another one, the dry cleaner. <laughs> but uh, I think they're like an organic dry cleaner. But yeah, I thought the real estate office was just kind of funny, too, because especially that cat Valentino has just such attitude. It's, it's really funny. The real estate office is in Brooklyn, and the owners are very New York, like, you know, and the cat has that sort of New York attitude, very Brooklyn attitude. And it was kind of a hoot to see them interacting with each other. The photos in the book are simply marvelous. Why don't you talk about the photographer that worked with you on this project? Oh, yeah. Andrew Martella is amazing. He's a real young uh, up-and-comer. And um, I say as I shake my fist in the air, <laughs> <laughs> darn him, he's so talented. Uh, I met him at Grumpy Cat's birthday party, believe it or not. Uh, about two years ago, uh, we were both there uh, because we both had affiliations with a certain brand. We were doing work for my, I was doing through my blog, and and he was through his Instagram account. His handle is I am the Great Went, and he really built his cat photography business purely through Instagram. He has a website, but most of the people that uh, know about him know him through Instagram. And you know, the minute I saw his work, I I really fell in love with it. I just loved the the look of it. I thought it was really unique. And he just has a way of connecting with cats. He's very, he's really a cat whisperer. He can really put them at ease. He works very fast, and he works with really not any equipment, just a flash and a camera. He doesn't have 
a tripod. He doesn't have special, like crazy lenses or lighting or even reflective, um, you know, panels or anything like that. He just, he's real basic with that, uh, but he seems to just get the best photography. And, you know, this was the first time he was doing really anything of this nature. So, you know, he and I did talk about how comfortable are you, and of course we did some test shots and things like that because we wanted to make sure to not have it be portraiture, which is really what a lot of his work had been, and make sure that we were able to capture the the sort of sense of being in New York and being in a particular store. And I think he did an amazing job. He, he really proved how flexible he is. Tomorrow, anything we didn't talk about that you would want to add about shop cats or cats in general? No, I mean, I think they're just such a unique part of the city. And I think it's one of those things that, you know, people don't always notice about New York City. So it's kind of like a, 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 a well-kept secret. And I kind of joke that, you know, in a dog-eat-dog world or a dog-eat-dog city, um, you know, there it actually has a, a kitty's underbelly. So cats are not as obvious in this city as dogs are. But they truly play a very important role in making this city unique in, in a particular way that can't be found everywhere. So I think it's just another facet of New York City life, and that's why I think the book is just as much about New York as it is about cats. Tamara, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Tamara Arslanian is the author of Shop Cats of New York. It's published by HarperCollins. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. My thanks to producer Zach Zalas. I'm George Boldarki. Thank you so much for listening. It's WFUV and WFUV HD New York. Listener-supported public media from Fordham, the Jesuit University of New York. Music discovery starts here.